Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Hi, I'm Daryl Wanza Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Imagining Latinidades, the podcast. Uh, so today, unfortunately, very, very sad for us. Rene isn't with us today. But we do have some very awesome special guests that will be joining us uh, in a little bit to talk about their research experience, their their relationship with Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, to have them here to talk about that relationship to Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. Yes, we will get into that in a second. Yes. Um, so we're also recording the week before classes start. And I don't know. I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like that's a sad trombone moment as well. Very excited for the new academic school year. It's devastating. Yeah. It's yeah. devastating. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when everyone came uh, came to meet up at my office to because to, the recording studio is here in, in my building, uh, the building is like buzzing with activity because it's the first day of grad student orientation. And so there were like all these people, all the doors were open to faculty offices, all the doors to the grad student offices were open. People were meeting and discussing their futures, which means that, you know, yeah, summer's coming to an end. Yeah. Time to get real with everything again. Seriously. But here we are. Yay. It's exciting. It's exciting. It is exciting. You know what? I will say the series of events that we have planned for this academic school year is exciting. That that's that's going to like keep me going. It is. I'll be honest. It's I am it is one of the things that really does uh excite me and animate me and make me look forward to this year. I think it's really great that we're going to have all of these wonderful events, the film series, um, all these great people coming into campus and bringing a bunch of people who are already on campus together, mm-hmm. uh, it does give me kind of new life, right? It's like, it's right. it's sort of, you know, even though a bunch of us, you know, have, have been here on this campus for a number of years, to to be able to get together on a regular basis and just to meet and chat about Latina, Latina, Latinx studies and to talk about the ideas of people who are coming in and why that's important to our scholarship and why that's important to our communities. That's really that's that's a turning over of a new leaf in some ways. Yeah. And I'm I'm quite looking forward to it. So summer's been real. Loved it. Gonna miss it, but we will reunite soon. So yes. As Renee says, summer's been over since at least July 4th. Right. So alas. I've I've been in meetings like almost like a couple a few times a week. I right. Think. Yeah. So one of the things that uh that that I have it's it's not a bone to pick mm-hmm, with you, mm-hmm, Ariana. Mm-hmm. Uh but I, I, I think Maybe some of our listeners have noticed from the from the first episode and from some of our our banter here kicking this off that we pronounce something a little bit differently. And I have to say that I did not realize this was a thing till you brought it up in passing. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? I, so, I've, uh-huh. I, I've actually conducted uh, uh, unscientific survey research on this mm-hmm. uh, via the Twitters mm-hmm. uh, and post, post the question to people on Twitter. How do you say, how do you pronounce this term L-A-T-I-N-X? Mm-hmm. Like, do you say it Latinx? Do you say it 
Latinx. See, and that took a minute for me to be Wait, like, well, what's the difference? But I, don't, I don't hear it. There's more options. You could say Latinx. Uh-huh. You could say Latinx. Uh-huh. I, I kid you not. <laughs> All right. There were like over 300 responses to this uh, to this Twitter Twitter poll that I conducted. I think seven percent answered Latinx. Latinx. Something's okay. wrong there. Okay. Uh-huh. But Latinx and Latinx were. Okay. So were what, how defi- do I how do I say it? Can you just say it? Just so to I can me, it- to my ear, you say it Latinx. Latinx. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what do you say? I say Latinx. Latinx versus Latinx. Yeah. See, and you're also coming at a person who had a really, really hard time saying Shambao. Shambao? See, am I saying that right? Shamba? Shamba Auditorium? To me, that's Shamba. I I just had no idea. Well, but to me, Latinx is I am Latino. I uh uh uh-huh. I'm not Latino. 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 Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right, you wouldn't call me Latin. Right, right. But see, that th- that's the thing, too. I say Latina, Latino, Latinx. So that's why I, that, I think that's where that X comes in in the way that I'm pronouncing it. Because when I'm talking about certain things, I'll say Latina, Latino, Latinx. Latina, Latino, Latinx populations. So that's my, my yeah. I, that's where the, the X is coming in. So here's another question for you, though. And this okay. is tied to some of the scholars that we'll be um, bringing to campus. Oh, no, what I, know about, what this, I know what this question what is. What about L, capital L? A T I N capital X. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I just don't, I just don't know. I'm, I, and I know there's a I know there's a couple folks who are who are coming in for the opening conference um, in uh, in September who do use the capital X and and I I am curious about mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. about the rationale. I mean I know they they've written about it a, a little bit, but I'm curious about like the the kind of longer explanation for why the capital X. What's the what differentiates the capital X from the lowercase mm-hmm. X? But in terms of pronunciation, back to back to that. Uh, I think that it's it's interesting. Like I don't think I don't bring that up, right, to police that term and how it's being pronounced. I do think it's interesting that there is a, a clear split. Like in that little unscientific survey that I conducted, mm-hmm. and a similar survey that I saw someone do on Twitter, like a year or year and a half before that, it's basically evenly split. Basically, like forty five percent to forty five percent Latinx, Latinx, mm. uh, with then ten percent of these outliers like Latinx that don't make to me right just i don't understand the <laughs> right. rationale for that this and and i also bring this up because this is and maybe i don't know if you find this too i get asked this question all the time mm-hmm. i get asked like from from like acquaintances on facebook they'll like back channel me like okay how do you say this really yeah yeah i'm seeing for some reason i'm seen as an authority on on how to pronounce this term i'm like well it's interesting and i give i give the answer mm-hmm. of well, either way is basically mm-hmm. how you pronounce it because there is no there is no agreement completely on how to do that well i mean i think that it's i i haven't gotten messages of like how do you pronounce this i think it's like tied to a larger conversation of how we're using the term within the field yeah. Um, and within other fields as well. So using a term like Latina versus Latino versus Latinx or La- Latinx. Yeah. Or what did the other? Let, let, Latinx. Latinx. <laughs> which reminds me of kind of like Tinkerbell, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's how I'll remember to pronounce it yeah. that way. It's a little like Tinkerbell. Latinx. And, and even, I mean, even there, this is something that I think will be discussed, um, that we'll be discussing on this podcast over the course of this academic year, the importance of that term. I think, I think there is agreement across the board 
I mean, except for the people who are like, oh, it's a bastardization of the, you know, of the royal Spanish or or a colonization, um, as if Spanish isn't a colonial Which, language. Bye. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but I think amongst the uh, amongst amongst uh, well-intentioned folks, there is agreement of the importance of the emergence of that term, mm-hmm. uh, and still disagreement about how it ought to be used and about the like do you do we use latinx or latinx as a replacement for latino latino do we use it as an addition what are the consequences right. to those different utterances um and deployments of that term uh that i think is an important uh conversation that uh, that i hope we'll get to continue to have over the course of the year definitely and i think it's one that we've already started um just here on campus right just given our own um political inclinations why we decide to use one versus the other or all three, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it'll be it'll be really cool to delve into that further. Yeah, absolutely. Well, today we have a couple of very special guests who are joining us, uh, two folks who are in different capacities uh, operating as uh, Mellon Foundation fellows, and I'd like to ask each of them to introduce themselves. So maybe, Lisa, you can go first. Sure. Hi. So my name is Lisa Ortiz, and I am the Mellon postdoc for the Sawyer Seminar Imagining Latinidades, and I'm coming from the University of Illinois, where I obtained my PhD in 2018. Hi, I'm Rachel Torres. I am the Mellon pre-doc for the Sawyer Seminar, and I am currently a uh, PhD candidate at the University of Iowa in political science. And Renee is your advisor. Renee is my advisor. I am on Renee's mic today, so. (laughs) You're channeling. Yes, I'm channeling. (laughs) I can feel it. The Astros hat just appeared on my head, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, And so, Episode one, we were talking about our, what we called origin stories, our relationship with the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. Um, And so we were really wondering if you all could fill us in on your origin story. So Rachel, what brought you to the field? Uh, So my origin kind of started in undergrad at the University of North Texas. I was a McNair scholar when I was in junior year of college is when I started that program. And so I started doing work on um, acculturation with Dr. Regina Branton. And what got me interested in that is prior to that, I had never taken any kind of, I mean, I always go Chicanx, uh, but Chicano studies. And uh, part of getting my Latino uh, certificate at the University of North Texas was taking a bunch of Mexican history classes, Latino classes. And in that course of that, I just, I mean, I never learned that growing up. I never learned that history, any of that. So was it Chicano, Chicana, Chicanx studies out there or was it Latino? It was, Latino it was Latino OA studies. That was the certificate at the time. Mm-hmm. I'd never even heard Latinx until I think uh, I got to graduate school. Mm-hmm. But um, so, but when I was taking those courses, it was like the Chicano movement, all that stuff. And so that's kind of where I got interested. I was trying to figure out my own identity. And so in that process of like trying to figure out my history and myself, I started to read a lot and it really just kind of ignited a, a passion that really hasn't left me since. So, And how did that make its way into political science for you? So I was uh, in a political psychology course. It was in both of those. Uh, it was like a cross-listed and I really just uh, really liked the political science aspect of it. I mean, I think that a huge part of that is when I I grew up in Texas. And so identity is very political there. And so to me, it it meant more to examine how people in my community are policed and treated from like an institutional perspective rather than the psychology of like how like I 
to me, I understood how it, it was impacting the community. I was more interested in like why and like what the science behind that was. So that's kind of how I merged more into political science rather than, um, I would say, uh, uh, literature or something like that. Mm. And so were you also a political science major? I, tr- I switched. I was oh, originally, okay. I originally, this is the weirdest thing. I originally went to school for a fine arts degree. I was going to be a studio artist uh, or so I thought and took a, a political science classes and really just fell in love and changed my major, much to the delight of my parents, um, if they're listening. <laughs> now, did you get to take any courses with uh, Valerie Martinez-Ebert I did, I did. Val is also what I'd like to call my uh, academic mother. So she actually very, she guided me into continuing my education to getting a doctoral degree. And one of her classes was actually extremely eye-opening. And that's when I actually started to learn about the history of immigration policy in this country. And so that actually is the origin of my research work rather than my entry into the field. That's where I kind of developed my research interest was under her. Yeah, I had a, the great pleasure of working with her. I was a faculty member in communication studies at North Texas before coming to Iowa. You know, having someone who's senior on campus uh, when there weren't a lot of, there weren't a ton of senior Latino, Latino, Latinx uh, faculty at North Texas at that time. Yeah, I mean, people don't really realize, I mean, I didn't even really realize at the time is that she and a, a huge cohort of the Latino uh, scientists who work in political science were the first, right? They yeah. they were doing work that had never been done before. And so now we all get to enjoy our Latinx caucus, but it's it was really the foundational work that she did. So it's, it was incredible to study under her. Lisa, what about you? Like where, what's your, what's your origin story? How did you come to Latina, Latina, Latinx studies? So my origin story is uh, quite literally tied to Puerto Rico in the sense of um, having lived there for the majority of my life after migrating from Massachusetts, which is where I was born. And so when I went to Illinois for graduate school in 2012, I was searching for Puerto Ricanness and um, not quite finding it uh, immediately. So in my uh, sort of search venture journey, I uh, and also in part of the summer pre-doctoral institute that I participated in, I had the opportunity to connect with different faculty and staff on campus. And many of them kept telling me, you need to take the graduate seminar of um, Perspectives in Latino Studies, which I think is how it's called, uh, because it's only offered every two years. And so it's the required course for a graduate minor. And at the time, Dr. Richard Rodriguez was the one who was teaching it. And so, you know, that's what I did. <laughs> it was kind of like, this is, you know, where I'm going to go and I'm going to find Puerto Rico. And it wasn't quite like that. Uh, I kept reading about, you know, different things, but I couldn't really find the islands, the archipelago per se, there, which is what at the time I was looking for. And so I ventured across campus to Latin American and Caribbean studies, and I couldn't quite find the islands there either. I would say that I became exposed to Latina, Latino, Latinx studies in 2012, but I really didn't start making these connections and understanding what this was um, and how Puerto Ricans fit into this larger group uh, until the year after, about uh, fall 2013, which is when I was really making sense of citizenship, privilege, um, dichotomies, uh, and really understanding relationships with other uh 
folks, especially Mexicans at the time, um, and in my own experience as a graduate student. And so that's really how I started understanding that being Puerto Rican did not necessarily mean that I couldn't be part of this larger group, right, of, of what Latinidad meant. And so I think that that's really how I, once once I discovered that and I understood, okay, these are the contradictions, but these are also the possibilities was when I very much started to identify within the larger group, but also to really identify as Latina um, because before it usually was, uh, I'm, I'm just Puerto Rican, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. Boricua. Like, and so, you know, it took a while. And, and because I was in Puerto Rico and because of my educational trajectory, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of, you know, similar to what you were talking about, Rachel. Like, I didn't know a lot of this, right? Um, but my undergrad is in business. <laughs> so um, I definitely was not exposed to any of this critical um, thinking or awareness. And when I did my master's in English education, luckily, thanks to many critical scholars um, in the Department of English at the time, I was able to really understand the politics of English on the island um, and what that meant. And in that journey, really thinking about um, is or questioning if English indeed was key or not, uh, you know, when you're living on the island as someone coming from a low-income background and, and understanding that and understanding how migration fit into that, in part because of my own story, but really, you know, figuring out and learning how people have moved historically and that that wasn't necessarily because of choice. Lisa, that's super interesting. So you're going from business to English education mm-hmm. and then you make your way to Illinois. Right. Like what were those jumps and trajectory shifts like? Yeah. So um, I went into business perhaps because I I wasn't really aware of the opportunities as a first generation college student Coming from a low-income family, from a rural place in Puerto Rico, I didn't really know how to navigate or ask those questions. And I didn't have anyone to ask, really. And the only person that I had gave me incorrect information. So I did my bachelor's in business and I was able to be employed at the University of Puerto Rico relatively recently after I graduated in 2003. So I was a full-time employee uh, at the University of Puerto Rico in Mayagüez and as a full-time employee, and thanks to our union, we got our uh, studies covered completely with exception of fees. And so I took advantage of that. And I said, well, what can I study here that I uh, don't have to pay while I'm working full-time? And so the the options were a master's in human resources, which I knew at the time, like I didn't want to continue to be in that sort of business-oriented uh, platform and... So the other options were master's in English and master's in Hispanic studies. And because I originally had wanted to be an English teacher, I went with the master's of English in education. And so they had a education, literature and linguistics route. And I went with the education route. But thankfully, with critical professors, folks who weren't trying to impose English onto people um, in the in, in some ways in which other folks had done in the past. Uh, And so in that trajectory, in that time where I was doing my master's and thanks to those faculty mentors, I was also working with a project that was providing access to low-income students who lived in residential housing. And although I wasn't like on the research component of that project, it really opened my eyes. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wow, you can do this? Like you can 
have these projects, you can get money, mm-hmm. external money and and create these opportunities for folks. Like, how do you continue to do this? And I knew that at some point I wanted to teach at, un- at a university. So I asked professors, like, what do you have to do to do that? And someone was like, you have to get a PhD. Yeah. And especially in the context of Puerto Rico, problematically, I think um, you have to get a PhD outside of Puerto Rico if you want to be taken seriously in Puerto Rico, if you are ever interested in finding a job here. So... I went to Illinois because a faculty mentor saw me and said, you have to apply to the University of Illinois. And that was one of my options. That's so so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I made my way thinking that I wanted to work specifically with first generation college students Mm -hmm. um, and their experiences in higher education. But along the way, because of my migration story and some things that happened to me at Illinois, I very much focused on migration Mm. within the context of education. And really thinking about the exposure to research and to faculty mentors who tell you about these things, Mm -hmm. right? So episode one, I was mentioning that, like, again, first generation coming from a working class background, how uh, we didn't have McNair, um, but we had the faculty mentorship program. And that really exposed me to faculty who were like, hey, this is what you can do. And this is what you should definitely think about. Um, Rachel, you were talking about the McNair program a little bit earlier and how that was really important to your decision-making process, right? Um, so I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Your, how did you even learn about it or get involved? Yeah, I, unfortunately, it was kind of a traumatic experience at the time, which was I was brought to UNT on uh, their Emerald Eagle program. Um, in the course of that, it was a wonderful program, um, took care of all my tuition and expenses, However, um, I was still finding myself needing money. So in that process, I got myself a job on campus at a computer lab. Uh, Emerald Eagle then found that my income was to be too high because they were saying that my parents' income and my new income combined disqualified me. Unfortunately, uh, my parents were not able ever uh, to pay for education. So they were like, luckily you have enough scholarships just on basic academic um, merit to keep you from taking a full brunt of this, but you need to start looking for other options. And one of those options that they gave me a host of was the McNair program. So I went in, um, the director at the time was Diana Elrod, I believe. And she just sat me down and she said, what are your plans? And I mean, I'll be full disclosure. I was like, I just got to game this so I can get my degree. I'm two years in, right? And I I just want to finish my degree. And then, so I just said, I want to make a difference in the world. And so uh, it was very competitive and I got in. And so I was like, okay, I feel guilty about this, but I'll just go through. And then in that process, you are required to take classes from McNair program that is about getting ready for graduate school, Mm -hmm. that process. Um, And I just went and then I was like, well, okay, I'll apply, but I'm not going to go to graduate school. And then I got some offers and I was like, I'll go on the I'll, free trip, right? Uh, senior year. They let, right. you, they, let you out of, they let you out of class to fly to exotic locations like Iowa City. Right. So, so I, I visited and I was like, this was wonderful, but I'm not going. And then I was like, well, I'll go, but I'll get my master's for free. Because if you join a PhD program mm-hmm. and you get your master's in that time, I was like, I'll just quit then. And uh, just defend my perspective. So it was really kind of just this roller coaster. But I had no idea. No one in my immediate family has ever gotten a doctoral mm-hmm. degree. So they, I mean, they still don't understand what I'm doing or what I do. But, um, you know, it was, if it weren't for just like, I honestly feel like it's luck sometimes. If it weren't just for the luck of who you managed to talk to, who you have the 
you know, the, the fortune of taking a class who takes an interest in their students, who talk to you, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that these programs existed. But I think that speaks back to, and this is a question that I think we we also pose to both of you, is like sort of the importance of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies um, for someone in undergrad or graduate school, right? Because I think for me, that was that moment in taking these sort of classes as an undergrad where I got to make those relationships that I otherwise would not have known about, right? Because same, family has no idea what I'm doing. They're like, wait, you get paid to do what? And you're going where? And writing about what? Like we were on vacation and my parents were like, oh, she has to do her homework. And I'm like, I am working. I am an adult. This is research. Um, So yeah. So thinking about those sort of just differences in our experience to where we are on now. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say, I'm not that kind of doctor mom. <laughs> right, just, right. That, that wasn't, that, that it just, it wasn't, it wasn't clicking at, at a certain point. And maybe she was joking around with me a little bit, but, you know, as a first generation uh, student, this was, it was all new for me too, and new, a new experience for, uh, for my family. But yeah, I mean, circling back, you know, both of you explained some, some of the kind of importance of encountering Latino, Latino, Latinx studies uh, as part of your undergraduate education or graduate education. And so can you talk about that a little bit more? Why do you think Latina, Latino, Latinx studies is valuable first for undergraduates and then for graduate students and maybe for, you know, for their family members who might be listening to this podcast too? Do you want to go, Lisa? Sure. I think that, you know, one of this reminds me of uh, when I teach and usually when I've asked students, why are you taking this class beyond the typical, you know, it suffices a gen ed uh, answer Many students usually always answered by saying, I want to learn about my culture and or I want to learn about my history. And then by the end of the semester are surprised that they've learned about different cultures, right? That it's not only one thing. um, It's not only one history and it's not uh, disconnected from others. And so I think that for them in many ways, undergraduate students, graduate students myself is, is finding yourself, right? Um, or making sense of things that perhaps you knew, but you didn't really know how they were called, or you you can now place a name on something, right? Um, so I think that that is important. I think also uh, seeing yourself on the page, and not that we should need external validation, but, you know, really seeing this and, and realizing this validates who we are, this validates our communities, not from a deficit perspective, right, uh, as as we've been written about in the past, but really questioning and reimagining what scholarship is. And I think that for students to realize that this is research, that this is scholarship and that, you know, by us and for us is crucial individually, personally, but but also academically. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just to jump off of that real quick. I mean, it, it, it says there is a home for this here mm-hmm. and for you at this university in this institution of higher education. Who you are, where you come from, the history that you're a part of, uh, the social structures that you're a part of, right, are, are, are part of the university mission. They're part of this country, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a place for that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with everything Lisa said. And even to go beyond that, right, I, I, I agree that we don't need external validation. But what I think that this area of studies does is a reclamation of power in mm-hmm. our history, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that you know, when I first took my first class, I mean, it's not to say like I have no knowledge of the injustices of, you know, my people, but it's that to see it laid out and to see the truth of it and to see how it's been obscured. That was like, at first I was angry and then I was sad, right? 
And that was like a motivating factor of like, why doesn't everyone know this? And why is this seen as such a niche interest? And the secondary thing is to see for me, Latinx faculty, you know, in mm-hmm. the, in an institution and being respected and to have the ability to share us and to see my heritage and my culture being treated as something worthy of respect and worthy of, you know, honor was like tremendously important for me, you know, as an undergraduate. And I think there's a secondary aspect of that of, why should people who aren't, you know, Latinx take these classes as well? Why are they important? Is the acknowledgement that you are, you don't understand history if you only understand some of it, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So, so that's, to me, the importance is like, you know, the truth is a very powerful thing. And I think this area of studies is very concerned with the truth, the truth of our people and the truth of, you know, the history of our of our world, you know? Which is not to say, I guess for me, it's important to also, uh, you know, add that we're not romanticizing, right? Critical ethnic studies and gender woman studies and all these, uh, you know, interdisciplines. Uh, And because, you know, we we acknowledge and we know that we're not perfect and that these narratives might not be perfect. But I think it's in those contradictions, right, that we grow and we can really understand. uh, And it allows us to learn to unlearn, right? When Mm -hmm. students come in, perhaps, trying to find themselves and then realize sometimes we've been taught and the way we've been socialized by family or just because our families might not have known, um, we play into some of the complicities even against other marginalized communities despite our minoritized identities. And so I think that that's also important. Latino studies, Latinx studies continue to be important, but that we also need to continuously question um and in order to move forward be vigilant yeah yeah Yeah, i mean that's yeah that's that's in part the story behind the 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 addition right the discussion about the x right yes is a way (laughs) in which a way in which latino latino i mean heck that's the it's the it's that's the story of the movement from latino studies right to Mm -hmm. latina latino studies right that through feminist struggle right brings in a brings in a, a period of questioning about uh the ways in which the field was maybe uh, too focused uh, and embedded within masculinist ideologies and patriarchal uh, understandings and perspectives of the world, right? The X queers that those understandings as well. And even like something that maybe to, to us seems as simple as naming our Sawyer seminar and naming this podcast, imagining that Dinidades as a plural, right? Mm-hmm. That's incredibly important because it it it, it suggests, right? And, and it's you know, quite explicit when we talk about it, that there is no one way to understand Latinidad, right? There's no Mm -hmm. monolithic, homogenous Latinidad. And in fact, the way that that term has been used in the past, right, while certainly as a a tool for political power and has a usefulness in that regard, also paints over a history of anti-Blackness and opposition and erasure of indigeneity um, and you know, drawing from and 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 kind of like building up the plural helps to counter some of that and gives that space to not just romanticize like some kind of you know what was well, in in some ways when the field started what was a kind of like macho history of <laughs> yes. you know Latinos in struggle and you know reclaiming that uh, that uh, and, and has moved beyond that to to really something that my favorite word explores the complexities, right, of multiple Latinidades. Yeah, I mean, I think when we're talking about it, even within the classroom, there is this discussion uh, that starts really early on in, for example, my intro to Latina Latino Latinx Studies course, um, where it's going to be uncomfortable. And so what does it mean to sit with that uncomfort and to be able to to work through it? Because as you all have said, um, it 
it's really about problematizing various fields and various fields of knowledge as well, right? So it's it is that um, that learning that learning to unlearn as well that I, I think was just really well put, Lisa. So speaking of learning to unlearn, uh, how do you how do each of you operationalize these commitments and these ideals and this background that you're bringing to it in your own research? So Lisa, what are you doing uh, in your research right now? So right now I'm working on teasing out the representations or the relationship between representations of Puerto Rican migration, gender, and education in the context of the media in the Midwest and perhaps more specifically the rural Midwest. So kind of asking uh, what we know about migration in the context of Puerto Ricans um, and what we don't know, and a lot of it means that we don't know a lot about these non-traditional spaces um, or regions where folks are coming to. But also thinking about what it means for women in particular, for example, to migration as learning, right? Um, moving to these new spaces and navigating and negotiating uh difference and new spaces within the context of where they are located uh, physically, quite literally, but also how they maintain connections and relationships through social media, Facebook Live, these different interactions. So that's where I'm at right now, trying to piece all of this together. Great. Rachel? I'm currently working on my dissertation. <laughs> I, I Yay! Um, specifically, what I'm trying to look at is how immigration has become racialized over time, right? Um, initially, in the idea that immigration was once seen as like a a race neutral thing, right? Back when it was associated more with Europeans. And as over time, that narrative has changed to be more about the Latinx uh, population. It has become increasingly hostile. And more specifically, I'm looking at how immigration enforcement contexts, which vary, have different impacts on Latinos, Latinas and Latinx uh, communities. The big thing uh, people always talk about, I feel like with Latinx is that so many people don't really feel you know, you you pull a hundred Latinx people off the street and you ask them, you know, how how strongly do you feel connected to the Latinx community? You know, and you'll get people say, I feel, you know, incredibly strong. And then some people will say, I don't, you know, have any association. And those kind of differing views of like trust of the government, how they operate politically, whether or not they vote, whether or not they protest, mobilize, that stuff to me can always be traced back to the places that they live in and the the context they live in and how, you know, the politics within that specific area have formed their identity over time. So I'm looking at how immigration enforcement varies across the United States um, and more specifically how that has not only impacted the foreign born population, but also just Latinos in general over time and whether or not it's actually built solidarity, destroyed it. Um, so I hope, I hope mm-hmm. I'm doing all these things. <laughs> <laughs> The thing that's striking to me about both of your research programs is the ways in which uh, they are connected to people's lived experiences in their communities. Uh, And people, I think, often think about academics and the work that scholars do as operating within this, you know, the life of the mind, right? The ivory tower kind of thing. Um, but, you know, Latino, 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 Latinx studies has always had that connection to community, whether that's in uh, how it informs theoretical perspectives, how it informs the methodological approaches that we have, but also like 
the relationship goes the other way too, that the scholarship that we, that we do for you know, our dissertations, for our books and articles, right, has implications for the communities that, uh, that we hold dear, that are important to us. And so I was wondering if you could each say a word or two about why this research that you're doing is so important to those communities that it's connected up to. So for me, like if I was, to, if like I was staying for my family, like why does this matter? I would say this is why the the work I'm doing is trying to figure out why one policy fix doesn't work always, right? The idea is, is that because you have so many different people living in so many different communities, people always want a easy answer of how do we solve the problem, right? Even the immigration, you know, um, crisis right now, crisis in quotations, the idea that like there is one uniform action that can be taken by people that could fix things. And my, my thing is no, right? And if you were to adopt the same approach everywhere, it would fail. And so it's, I think in one way, it's about saying, how do we actually acknowledge like what is going on in our communities, right? From a sense of like actual government action. The second is to, I would say, give people a little bit more credit and that people try in their own communities different approaches. And when they fail, it's not necessarily because of the fault of the organizers. It is because of how the politics and policies within their areas operate. One size doesn't fit all. Right. I don't know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's some words. <laughs> Admittedly, I'm still thinking about this. You know, I'm still thinking about how Latina, Latino, Latinx studies is enacted on the ground, right, um, in 2019 and what we're doing or not doing. In my research, in the context of my work, I would say that perhaps folks might still not 100% see, you know, how this might affect them positively. Uh, but I think that there are other outcomes, right? So the fact that I am engaging with folks, that I'm visiting them, that we're having these conversations is on the one hand, really acknowledging and recognizing what they already know, right? Like so many participants, uh, interlocutors that I spoke with knew so much, right? And so to have them have the opportunity and space to be heard, I think was of great value for them and for myself. Uh, but I am thinking, you know, also of the opportunities that sometimes we are able to give without necessarily having had that in the plan, right? So knowing that I was at the University of Illinois and perhaps they had questions about college admissions or they had questions about how perhaps to navigate a school system, uh, questions to ask in different spaces uh, and feeling that I was or, you know, other people were instruments to be able to answer those questions and not have to feel that they had to go elsewhere, I think is something that in a sense is perhaps fulfilling to me, but I want to believe that also things that they have shared is also fulfilling to them, right? And to the children that um, that I was also able to be in contact with. So I, I think that there are tangible outcomes, but I also think that I'm in the process of really thinking meaningfully of how to do that better. That's great. And Lisa, so a part of your work is really thinking about these quote unquote unexpected communities um, within rural spaces, which also are imagined to be rather white spaces. Um, and so this is a question for both of you in, in thinking about even the way that our program has emerged here at the University of Iowa. Um, I'm wondering if there are any sort of messages or or words of wisdom that you can 
uh, impart on our listeners about the experience of being a POC at a predominantly white institution where you sometimes might not feel like you belong? For me, um, this is something that as a TA, I I recently taught my own uh, immigration course in the spring and I had um, several students who were also POC come to my office hours quite emotional saying, that they were really struggling in their time at this university, that they did not feel like they fit in, that they felt that the spaces were too white, that they didn't want to speak. Then they did speak. They felt like they were just surrounded by, you know, hostility and that the otherness that they were experiencing was overwhelming. And I don't think it's necessarily great uh, advice that I said back, but I said, the system is designed to make you feel like this. And When you fail, it is to be expected because it has not been designed in a way that you succeed. And when you do succeed, you have overcome so many obstacles that you should just be dancing on a rooftop. And so I guess for me, the the advice I would say is do not be so hard on yourself. So many POC, including myself, when I hit a wall or I feel like I am a square in a round hole, I I take that as a sign that there's something deficient within me, within my research, within my, you know, uh, abilities. And the truth of the matter is, is that the systems that we exist in currently are not designed for people like us. And so the important thing is that you continue to take up space and to fight and to make people know that you're not going anywhere. And, And as I've said you know, to people in my own department, because I I have debated quitting so many points in this uh, journey that, you know what, you'll have to drag me out of here (laughs) because I'm not going anywhere. Um, And, you know, and that I think is, is truly the powerful thing is that you do belong, you know, just because it's not in welcoming doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong Mm -hmm. with the surrounding environment. Yeah. I think that in line with, you know, how these systems are not meant for us inherently means that we need to question the definition of belonging, right? Because if we try to fit into a definition of belonging by the PWI in which we're located, then we'll never be able to see beyond that, right? So really exploring, regardless of perhaps what people might be telling you about like, you know, events, spaces, classes, faculty, staff who engage in Latinidades, um, allow yourself to go and explore that, right? And see for yourself and learn for yourself on the one hand, um, and not believe those messages that that might be telling you that you're not cut out to be here, that you don't you shouldn't be here or that you're here because you're lucky or whatever the mm-hmm. message might be. Right. Uh, but I also want to add, I think that something that kept me quite grounded when I was doing my dissertation and overall, I would say, you know, my college career and journey was to remember and keep at the forefront, my familial and friend networks, especially people who were not in academia. That is the reality. I mean, I think that I had to really remember there's life. There's like, this is real life, right? Um, (laughs) And so I think that that was crucial for me to really recenter myself. And of course, I was at a PWI as a graduate student, so I had a lot of privilege to choose the spaces that I was in, whereas I know that perhaps graduate undergraduate students, I mean, might not have that privilege, right? They need to go to these classes that they cannot get themselves out of. And so I would say without putting the onus on students uh, for structural inequalities, I will say, yes, like speak your voice. You have 
a lot of power if you come together um, and organize, even if you might not necessarily think that you're an activist or an organizer, support folks who are doing so um, and have your voice heard. Thank you both so much. The powerful words to end on. The next episode is two weeks away. We'll be previewing the speakers uh, for the opening conference and discussing their existing research. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter at Imagining Lat for the podcast. Shoot us an email at podcast at imagininglatinidades.com. And please share the podcast with friends and give us five stars at Apple Podcasts uh, or stars or thumbs up or whatever uh, in your other podcasting apps of choice. Those ratings help to expose us to more people and give us a fighting chance of making it onto one of their curated lists. Thanks so much for listening. Um, Make sure to check the show notes for all of the links and sites that are discussed in today's podcast. Yeah, thanks for listening in. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again, both uh, both of you, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.